Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you, Dr. Whitfield. It's great to be at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, I remember walking uh, outside around campus as a prospective student. I actually didn't wind up coming here, uh, but uh, the reason is uh, we went to visit Southern Seminary, and we had, a, my wife and I, we had, uh, were actually engaged at the time, and we had a chance to go meet with uh, one of the administrators, Dr. Danny Aiken. And we went into his office, and he made met us for about an hour. He was very gracious to us, and we got in the car to drive back to Tallahassee, and I said, you know, I really enjoyed being in Wake Forest. That was a really neat campus, but I really want to go to Southern because Dr. Aiken just blew me away. So as soon as we show up on campus, it's announced that the new president of Southeastern Seminary uh, is Dr. Danny Aiken. So then I go to Southern without him there, and then I return here to seminary, and once again, he's not here. So that's my uh, Dr. Aiken story. Uh, it's, but it is great to be here at this great seminary. It's a privilege to get a chance to be your chapel speaker this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump into talking about what it actually looks like to hear and also to preach or to communicate a deeper sermon. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this school, for this institution, for these students being trained in your word and theology and missions to go uh, with the good news of the gospel. As you bless this time, we pray for all of our seminaries in the SBC as they gather this week that the harvest is plenty, the workers are few, and that will change because of what's happening on the campuses of the Southern Baptist Seminaries. Please speak through me now. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if it was April Fool's Day when chapel fell, I was hoping it was yesterday, my sermon title was going to be, I'm Staying. Uh, that would have been kind of fun. Uh, but since it's not, that wouldn't have worked. I just need something deeper. How many of you have probably ever thought that before? Or heard that before, if you get a chance to preach? Why are you leaving the church? Y'all are so involved here. Why are you going somewhere else? What happened? Did somebody offend you? Are you mad? No, we love it. We love the kids' ministry, and we love you, and everybody's so nice to us, and it's even close to our house, but we just need more depth. I can't tell you how often a pastor hears those words. We just need something deeper. It's just not deep enough for us. It actually is not talked about in pastor circles very often, but if you have lunch with somebody and get you know, a little more personal long enough, that will come up about just how much confusion that can cause. Or maybe you lead a Bible study or a small group and someone leaves, you were a great part of our group, what happened? Does the night of the week not work out for you? Well, what's the deal? And well, you know, we enjoy it, we think people are really nice, but you know, we just need a little more depth in the discussion. We just need something a little deeper. But what makes that claim so difficult to be able to respond towards and maybe change and do something about is rarely can anyone tell you exactly what they mean when they say that. Rarely can someone actually define those terms. Now, I'm not talking about being at a church or in a Bible study where the gospel is not preached or the scriptures are not preached. That's not a depth problem. That's an everything else problem. But how do we make sense of this? 
How do we respond, and even in our own hearts, when we're part of a church that we love and has great community and has great theology, when that thing starts to turn in our mind of, I just need something deeper, I just need more depth, how do we make sense of all that? But what I see often is really kind of one of two things when depth or going deeper is defined by church members. And the first thing is it's really just more of a feeling than it is about actual substance. Especially in church planting, if you really have the unbeliever in mind or the guest in mind when you're speaking, you don't cater the message towards them, you just preach the word, but they're on your mind constantly. You talk to anyone that just has a heart for the loss and the pastorate or leading a small group, whatever it might be, and as they're preparing their lesson, their sermon, they think regularly about the guest. But what happens in our minds often is when we hear maybe a pastor just define some terms, like he might use the word justification or sanctification or glorification, and he'll just pause for a minute and just define what that means rather than just letting the theological word just land out there. Something in our mind goes, oh, this must be for new people. This must be for unbelievers. This must be for seekers, whatever that actually even means. I guess I need to go somewhere else for more mature Christians. So often it's a feeling of a lack of depth rather than the substance of a lack of depth. And the other thing that I've learned, the second thing is it might just mean merely academic, just very intellectual, intellectually stimulating type sermons. And that's always interesting to me because usually that crowd is very critical of attraction type models. And I think, well, yeah, there's a lot to critique there, but you're just, by the way, you define depth and going deeper, you're just really creating an attractional model for intellectual types or for academics. But I wanna make sure that I do unlock for people when I preach God's word, his deeper things. I wanna make sure I have depth in my sermons. I mean, but how do I even do that? I mean, I was a senior in high school and my parents were praying I would make a C in math. Imagine that prayer, our Lord, please let our son be barely average. Actually, my math class is embarrassing. My math class my senior year of high school was called math. It's not funny. What class, what math class are you taking? I'm in trigonometry with Mrs. Miller. Oh, I'm in calculus with Mrs. Cruz. What math class are you in? Math. Even our PE classes had things. They were called team sports, personal fitness. I was in math. Okay, so someone like me, that is not the sharpest tool in the shed. I was actually thinking about going back and getting my PhD, but they told me that I had to go to school for that. So I was like, what? You know, so who's not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I feel a responsibility to be able to unpack these great truths, the deeper things of God. I don't want someone to ever leave our church saying it's not deep enough. I don't want someone to leave a Bible study led by one of our faithful church members saying that there's just not enough depth there. So I wanna make sure I can define what that actually means. Because far too often in the Christian life, we throw words around without any meaning. We have cliches and terms that have no definition or foundation whatsoever, and it can actually leave people frustrated and confused and for pastors, extremely discouraged especially in the area of depth or going deeper. And as seminary students, my guess is you never actually have that problem. You're not the one that has a Bible study that lacks depth. You're 
not the one who has a small group, a three-person group that meets for coffee that lacks depth, or you're not the one that when you prepare sermons to go uh, to the church, maybe you're pastoring bivocationally, or a Disciple Now weekend you go be a guest speaker at, that depth's probably not your issue, but I promise you it will come one day. And you'll also realize there's gonna be different contexts that come to you that aren't just people that live close to a seminary. And you're gonna to need to be able to unpack things, but your job is not less depth, it's to properly understand it. But thankfully, I think Jesus gives us the keys in Luke chapter 24. I think Jesus points us in the right direction of how we should understand and define the whole idea of something having depth or something going deeper. The context here is the Emmaus Road has taken place. Jesus has died. His disciples were dejected. They felt like they were duped. Another one came along and said he was the Messiah. We believed him. Give us a little bit of a break. I and mean, we saw him perform miracles. We heard his teachings. He was different than anyone else who had come before. We were willing to drop our nets and go follow him, leave our families and go follow him. But then just like everybody else, I mean, the mortality rate's 100%. He, he died. What kind of Messiah is that? So they hung their heads and had a little pity party and walked down that Emmaus road to get out of town before they could be mocked or harmed, continue to be socially isolated. But then something took place that of course we celebrate every day as Christians, but we're really gonna celebrate in just a few weeks, that Jesus rose from the grave proving once and for all that he was the one he claimed to be, the one that was predicted and pointed to and prophesied for the entire biblical story. But they didn't know that yet. They don't have the luxury that we have of knowing the entire story. They didn't have that at that moment. So Jesus is walking next to them. They can't even recognize him yet. They're unable to do so. And Jesus asks them some questions. They have a little pity party. We thought he was the one. We thought he was the guy. And in verse 25, he said to them, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So in my pursuit of teaching the Bible through preaching or Bible study or mentor group, whatever it might be, I want to make sure that I interpret the things, as Luke says, the way Jesus interpreted the things. I want to make sure that he's my model for what it means to unlock the truths of God's word for the hearer. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if I want folks to have their faith increase, I want to make sure that I have a certain depth to my teaching that by God's grace is going to allow that to be possible. So in this text, I believe, and I'm not trying to read too much into it, but I believe he's about to unlock for us a guide for preaching and teaching to others. I believe it's right here and it can be missed very often, so I want to take the remainder of our time today by showing you how Jesus helps us understand what it is that we are to preach and communicate and how we are supposed to approach that in any ministry area the Lord might have us will be in verses 44 through 49. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's almost as if he's saying, as he said before in the text, haven't you read? Haven't you heard? 
Why don't you understand this? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What an act of God's grace that he would allow our minds to be opened to understand what it is that he has had to tell us. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. So where is Jesus pointing them with their witness, with their message? I believe from Luke 24, we can conclude the first thing is biblical theology. A deep sermon, a deep Bible study, is conscious regularly of biblical theology. We understand how the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled, and that they have. There's nothing like a conservative Christian or evangelical or kind of our tribe social media freakout. Uh, they last about 48 hours, and it's complete meltdown. If you don't talk about it, you feel like you're going to be labeled as like liberal or not caring or out of touch or whatever it might be. Uh, but this one of recent history lasted a lot longer than 48 hours, and people are still talking about it, including me right this moment. People completely melted down when Andy Stanley famously talked about being unhitched from the Old Testament. I think there's a lot of things we can learn from Andy about church and leadership, and I do have heard him preach sermons that were fantastic and very helpful for me and helpful for others, but obviously that mindset and even saying that out loud is very problematic. So our response is just to kind of freak out and to make comments and be snarky and you know, include little lines about, you know, we're not gonna unhitch, we're not gonna unhitch and talk about it over and over and over again. An entire podcast and articles have been written and recorded refuting those type of things. And I think the way we refute that kind of mindset is really simple in our churches. Preach biblical theology. It's to the point where if a comment like that is made by anyone the people who actually do hear it, which actually isn't most church members, they haven't actually heard of him or don't know the things that we freak out about. We're in our own little echo chamber, in our own little bubble. Side note, that was free. But for them to know the Old Testament and how the whole entire biblical storyline fits together, that their entire understanding of who Jesus is is based on what they know to be true of the Old Testament, that if someone said that, even the most basic non-deep church member would say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This Bible all is one story that's linked and fits together that tells the big idea from Genesis to Revelation about our condition before a holy God and what our loving and merciful God has done to reconcile us to himself, ultimately through his son, whose kingdom will reign forever and ever. Deep sermons, deep Bible studies, they don't need to sound like they're deep. We're not looking for a feeling we want to make sure that when we study the Bible, that we study the Bible as it was written to be understood, and that we take the discipline of biblical theology extremely serious. That's a very big deal for us. Please be reading books about it. Please read Graham Goldsworthy. Please pay attention in class when the professor is leading you in that direction and help you understand and to think and to know. So when it does happen, when people, and it's only going to get worse, more and more people are going to denounce the Old Testament because they're trying to really basically set themselves up to communicate new kind of ethics the Bible does not recognize. 
by getting rid of the Old Testament scriptures, by just kind of focusing on the Sermon on the Mount, at least the parts of it they like, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to happen more and more. And it's not new. It's happened in liberal scholarship forever. But if our folks that we lead, and again, I'm talking about three people at a coffee shop all the way to a pulpit, if they're trained and skilled in biblical theology, we're not going to have that problem. And it begins in the pulpit. I mean, here's Jesus saying, hey guys, you're dejected, you're embarrassed. Have, did you not understand? Have you not forgotten that the law of Moses that you know, the prophets, the Psalms, they must be fulfilled. And they're like, he's like, fulfilled, fulfilled. And I almost can imagine the moment where they just went, oh, that's what this was all about. Our understanding of who Jesus is is certainly more than the Old Testament, but it absolutely cannot be less. Biblical theology, of course, is not just Old Testament studies. It's much bigger than that. It's the entire storyline of the scripture, so it all fits together. But a deep sermon, a deep Bible study, a deep spiritual conversation based on truth has to, at the very least, be in the context of the big story of the entire thing. We're not proof texters. We're not isolated paragraphs to make a point people who believe in how the entire piece fits together, and I can't tell you how important it is for the average person sitting in a pew who has never been to a seminary class. Like, they have to know these things. And here's also what's pretty neat is they love it. Like, when they get exposed to it, the Old Testament was this boring thing you skip over. Like, if you do a Bible reading in a year plan, you make a New Year's resolution to read through the Bible in a year, and by February, you're like, just getting done with Exodus, and you just punt, you're just done, right? And, and what do they do instead? They go read a Jesus Calling Bible or something like that. That, that. That's what they do instead. But when we unlock these truths for them and to show them, you can truly see the excitement in their eyes to actually understand how all of this makes sense. It's not just cities and kings and events. No, it's the storyline God has given us of who he is and what he's done for his people and how his kingdom will reign forever and ever. A deep sermon according, according to Jesus, how he wants them to understand and interpret the scriptures is absolutely one that includes, not just includes, but is foundational in biblical theology. The second thing is gospel centrality, or we could even say Christ-centeredness. I think both of those things, centered on Christ, but also centered on his gospel. We'd be very careful with that because certain things can become so cliche in our tribes and in our studies and in our language that we lose sight of how significant it truly is. Christocentric preaching, gospel-centered preaching, those are not things that we came up with. Jesus talks about this in Luke 24. After he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, he also said to them, verse 46, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. One of the greatest pieces of advice I was ever given early on, piece of advice I was given early on in my ministry, I remember who told me this, so what you know is really good advice when the advice is bigger than the person. I remember who told me this. They said, never preach a sermon that would still be true if Christ had not died and risen. Never preach a sermon that would still be true if Christ had not died and risen. You know what, cultural Christianity, I just wrote that book about it, The Unsaved Christian, it thrives when it comes to sermons that don't need Jesus. And in fact, I would have told you my entire life before I actually heard the true gospel that I was a Christian. 
If you'd asked me why I was a Christian, it basically my answer was I wasn't an atheist, I wasn't agnostic, I wasn't Jewish, and I wasn't Muslim. Therefore, I was a Christian. And this is gonna sound strange and sound extreme, but I promise you, not only is it not, it's also very common in cultural Christianity. The cross and resurrection could have never taken place, and it wouldn't have changed my faith at all. Because my faith wasn't dependent upon Jesus in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. It was a generic theism that believed that Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem and taught us some really good lessons. And for some reason, he gets us to wear pastels and take pictures in the front yard on a day called Easter and then go to Nana's for ham. And that was the extent of it. But that's true in pulpits all across the country. All across Europe, our sermons, and a Christianity that is not dependent upon the work of Christ whatsoever. We must make sure that it can never be said of us that we would preach a sermon that could still be true if Jesus hadn't died and risen from the grave. And not just generically died as some kind of example of what it means to be you know, against the government of your time, but no, as our substitute in our place for our sins to reconcile us to God, which through biblical theology, was, we see types and shadows of this taking place throughout the storylines of the scriptures. We must be people who are serious about gospel centrality. Christ and his gospel in every single sermon. Like that is a deep sermon. That's what we should be looking for. If you're gonna leave a church or leave a Bible study and claim it's, not be, it's because of depth and it's because it's not deep enough, I hope by that you mean it's because Christ is not present in these teachings. I lost my wedding ring randomly and I, just a couple days ago, I haven't had a chance to get a new one yet. And it's actually been kind of weird, kind of strange. I've been married for, actually I'm kind of impressed with myself. I've been married for over 15 years and it's the first time I've lost it. So that's pretty good. Uh, but I've like lost it, lost it. Like I cannot find it anywhere. It's in my room somewhere. I took it off and I truly do not know where it is. And I'm a little insecure because my wife was like, hey, no big deal, we're still married. And I was like, you care a little bit? Like I know I'm not as pretty as I once was, but do you care a little bit that I'm like traveling around the country and not my wedding ring on like a little bit? That oh, will be fine. You'll, you'll get a new one. It's a little expensive, but you know, we're still married. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna... Okay, I'm just gonna take that to the bank. And uh, so it's been weird walking around without it and not to be too strange, but I've actually kind of felt naked without my wedding ring. And those of you who are married might be able to say that it's kind of, kind of the same way. If you're from South Carolina, it's actually naked, I know, but uh, for me, it's naked. Uh, so I, I, felt, I felt that way. And the truth is when it comes to a sermon that doesn't have Christ and not generic Jesus, not nice guy Jesus, but Jesus through his death and resurrection and second coming, through his gospel, it should feel like something's missing. But that's how I felt without my wedding ring on. I was actually gonna get one before I came here, uh, but I wanted to be able to save the sermon illustration, so I, I stayed with it. Uh, so, I, I, so I'm afraid that afterwards I'm gonna take a picture with a sign that says I'm going and it's gonna be to marriage counseling, uh, but that's all right. So, but that's how we should feel. We should feel like something is missing. I'm getting a new ring tomorrow, and that's going to go, okay, wow, this feels normal again. When it comes to hearing a sermon, preparing a sermon, hearing a Bible study, leading a Bible study, a gospel conversation, and the work of Christ is not central to that, it truly should feel like something is missing. Those are the deep things of God. And then the next thing, the last thing, is an urgent, responsive mission an urgent, responsive mission. Here he is, he unlocks the whole scriptures for them. 
He tells them the insignificance of biblical theology that everything has pointed to this moment. Lifts up himself as the main storyline of the scriptures, that the Messiah, that he would suffer, that he would rise. Now what's the next thing he says to them? Does he say, go and figure these out for a while? He says, no, you are witnesses to these things. And then we see the significance of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be empowered. That it's going to happen. You're not going to be alone, but you are witnesses to these things. I've never heard someone do a sermon on the Great Commission or on the significance of going or of being a witness or being someone who has a heart for the lost and afterwards heard someone say, man, that was really deep. I mean, that had so much depth. We might say, oh, I appreciate his passion. You know, I, I appreciate their care for that. I'm inspired to go do it myself. But rarely, if ever, have I heard someone talk about missions, the Great Commission, the call to go, to be witnesses of these things, and someone go, man, that was really deep. And I wonder sometimes, are we missing the boat altogether? Like, isn't this the point of all of it? I mean, last words matter in any culture and have over history. You could Google last words by famous people and there'll be whole pages dedicated to the things a general said before he died or an athlete or a civil rights leader or a president of the United States and those things are pretty significant. You'll even see people if maybe they uh, have a, a tragic news from a doctor and know that uh, their illness is terminal, they'll record a video for their family, give instructions to the kids. I mean, those things are precious to people. Very, very precious. Well, in the scriptures, we had the last words of Jesus and set, that each author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by God's sovereignty, willed for us to hear and to know. In Luke 24, it's Jesus talking about being witnesses. Then Luke continues in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is going to ascend to heaven, and what happens? He says, you're going to go be my witnesses to these places, to the ends of the earth. In the end of Matthew, we see the Great Commission. To go, therefore, into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing people. So if those are the last recorded words we really have of Jesus in terms of bodily form post-resurrection on earth, and even pre-resurrection, I should say, both of those things, because the storyline with the disciples oftentimes is that they will love, and they will go, and they will interact, and they will forgive. That always has some kind of action that responds to the good news that they've heard. So Jesus thought these things were that significant. If the scriptures that we believe are inspired by the Holy Spirit, if under the sovereignty of God that this is what was told to us, that these were the things, the last things we needed to hear, then couldn't we say that this is about as significant as it gets for us to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And if we said, what does it mean to be a disciple? We love to talk about discipleship, discipling, maturity, growth. All, I'm guessing we'd have some different ways we'd word it. We all took a poll and had everybody write down their definition of discipleship. But my guess is we'd all land in agreement that it comes down to becoming more like Jesus. We'd use different words, of course, but that's kind of what it would come down to. Becoming more like Christ, following Jesus. May I suggest that I don't think we're ever more like Jesus than we follow him into a lost world. So we cannot remove discipleship 
as a separate category from all the other, excuse me, we can't remove missions as this separate category from the rest of the discipleship that we are doing. They must be completely linked together. So at our church, what we try to do is, every small group we have, we do weekly groups in homes, we have some Sunday school classes on Sunday morning, uh, most of our groups are in homes, simply because we don't have the space. Our, our building wasn't really built for, for education, so we kind of farm that out into, into homes, which actually works really well for us. Every single study we have, group discussion guide that's written by our staff, they all end and summarize in mission. From your coworker to your next door neighbor to the ends of the earth. Why? Because we believe those are the deep things of God. We believe that those are the things that Jesus was continued to be concerned about. We pray the prayer from Luke chapter 10, verse 2, where Jesus said, the harvest is plenty, the workers are few. Pray for those to be sent into the harvest. Like that is what's consumed in our prayer time, in our focus. Because our biblical theology, our gospel centrality, our Christ is the main theme of everything we do, it must lead to this. It must lead to witness. So I actually really get sad when somebody accuses a church that's white hot for mission and reaching their community is not being deep enough, not having enough depth. My thought is always, well, well, what would that look like? Less of that? Less of these things? I'd much rather err on someone being too missional than not being missional enough. And we've made it complicated because in our words and our definitions, what does it look like to be missional? I think it means you're following Jesus into the world. You're intentionally following Jesus into the world with the biblical theology and gospel centrality you have. Equipped with those things. But again, our church members might not even know those words and they don't need to. One thing I try to do every Sunday is to preach really these theological truths. When I say deep theological truths, what I mean is biblical theology, gospel centrality, and gospel witness. Like that's what I mean by a deep sermon, those three things. And people don't even realize I'm doing it. And I can communicate all this theology and all this gospel centrality without folks having to have taken a class where they know all these definitions in order to understand it all. Like, let's define our depth, not by going, oh, I never heard that before. Or wow, that really stimulates me intellectually. You know, those things are fine, and those things are important, and those things are great. But I took a math class my senior year called math. And there's a lot of people that are just like me. But these were fishermen. These were people who went to follow Jesus because they believed that maybe he really was the one. And then they had their doubts. And then he rose from the grave and appeared to them and God opened their minds to be able to understand the scriptures. What was his response to them? Guys, he didn't say, guys, you should have known, or April Fools, or I'm back. He said, or surprise, change of plans. He said, this has been written. The entire scriptures that you know or have heard are understood in the context of me and not just me randomly. Remember the sacrificial system? Remember the Passover? Me. Now because of that, go. Because you're witnesses to these things. You've seen these things. Now here we are as people 2,000 years later 
who we didn't get a chance to actually walk down the Emmaus Road. And so we believe by faith. Now, they believe by faith as well. But we believe this good news by faith. We're hearers of it. And then we see the life change. We see what happens when people begin to understand. So I just need you to know that when you lead a small group at a coffee shop, when you preach a sermon at a Disciple Now weekend, when you go preach at your first church, or this Sunday, the church you drive to that's 60 miles from this campus to go preach the Word of God. Please know that people there who might be looking for a deep sermon or something that has a little bit more depth to it, they might say, oftentimes they have no idea what it means. It's not because they're people who lack intelligence. It's not that. They just never actually had it explained to them before. And most people, probably even in the pews, they're just there because they just go to church and that's just kind of what they do. And it's never been unlocked for them. What is all this really about? So we can try to impress. Please keep in mind that unless you pastor about 30 seconds from here, there's not a seminary professor in your congregation. At least there won't be down the road. And you know what they're impressed with anyways? Not your crafty, clever sermons. They're impressed by biblical theology and gospel centrality and a call to mission because that's the basis for their faith. So therefore, it should be the basis for all of our faith. So let's be really deep people. Let's have tremendous depth in our sermons and in our Bible studies and in our conversations, but let's define those things. Let's interpret the scriptures the way Jesus interpreted the scriptures, which is based on the whole storyline of his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return, his rule, his reign, the kingdom of God, that we as Peter, who experiences himself, went on to say, I can't stop speaking about what I've seen and heard. Why? Because he was a witness to these things. Doesn't get much deeper than Peter, I would say. And that's what he was about. So let's not have categories. This is evangelism, this is discipleship, this is theology. No, let's bring them all together and say this is the faith. This is what we do. This is what we're about all for the glory of his name and for his name to be made known. Let's pray together and commit to being deep communicators of God's word. Father, we are grateful for your word that you've given it to us. What a gift it is that we have the words of our God. Pastor, we'll be good stewards of that. We'll be found faithful when it comes to what you've given us, this gift that not only is there a God, but he has spoken. You have spoken to us through the scriptures, and we worship you for that. Pray for everyone who's here today, whatever their ministry is going to be, for a great church member to someone in a pulpit, I ask that we will care about depth and the deep things of you, and we'll interpret the scriptures the way that Jesus interpreted scriptures. Because in the past, you spoke through prophets, through the law, through the Psalms. But in these last days, you've spoken to us through your Son.
So empowered by the Holy Spirit, we ask that we'll be people who make the name of Jesus known to all who will hear. I pray for this great seminary. I ask you to continue to use the people who were here for the deep things of you. Ask in the name of Jesus. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.